This is such an incredible story. You may have seen it over the weekend. On Friday, authorities in Colombia located four kids alive uh, who had survived 40 days since a plane crash in the Amazon rainforest back on May the 1st. The siblings aged 13, 9, 4, and 1. One-year-old spent 40 days again in the jungle after the light aircraft they were traveling on with their mom and two pilots crashed. Uh, the adults uh, all died of their injuries in that crash and following the crash. It prompted a frantic search, of course. It took two weeks to find the wreckage, and then they realized that the children weren't there. So they then set off on this frantic search to find them, and then it took several more weeks to locate the kids. Here's ABC's Rita Roy. The Colombian army and local indigenous people searching desperately for weeks to find 13-year-old Leslie, 9-year-old Soleni, 7-year-old Tien Noriel, and the youngest, Christine, just a year old. The jungle's dense canopy complicating efforts from the air. Rescue teams turning to clues like footprints and half-eaten fruit. Then finally, they were spotted less than two miles from where their Cessna went down May 1st after its engine failed. Now, the four are recovering in hospital in the capital, Bogota. They're expected to remain there for several weeks. In the next half hour, we're going to talk about survival, how it is that they survived and what lessons can be learned from that. But let's first talk about surviving a plane crash. It is a story familiar to my next guest. In July of 2019, he was 20 minutes into a flight over a remote and densely forested part of Quebec's North Shore when his single-engine aircraft stopped. He too was far from the nearest airport and had to make and couldn't make an emergency landing. He instead deployed the aircraft's parachute for the actual craft itself and crashed into the trees. He survived barely after nearly being impaled by a tree on landing, then documented part of his ordeal on video. Have a listen. I just had to pull the cap's parachute. I'm in the middle of Quebec trying to get my SOS to work. She blew oil. I was losing oil pressure. I'm just going to take this vlog just so people can learn from this experience so that something good comes out of it. And now nearly four years later, he is a flight instructor. He continues a flight instructor. He continues to share that story to remind others to always be prepared. Matt Lettinen, pilot and crash survivor and flight instructor, joins me now. Matt, thank you. Thanks, Ben. Uh, Always interesting. I I mean, I think so few people understand what it is like to go through that terrifying situation of having a plane conk out, essentially. But in your case, you know, how how do you react to those other stories when you see them? Because you must, a piece of you must go out each time you see a story like that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, particularly this this story in terms of a a family or people that survive for this long in the wilderness, it's, it's absolutely amazing. Any survival in the wilderness for any amount of time, whether it's a few hours or a few days, is, is always difficult. But something in the neighborhood of 40 days in the wilderness is, is unbelievable. My, my experience was, was, uh, was difficult, but I think it's really orders of magnitude when you start talking about multiple days in the wilderness, not knowing what's going to happen and that uncertainty around you know, your, your fate. It, it's quite incredible. I can only imagine you had a brief taste of what that might be like, though, uh, on on that day, Uh, because you don't know once you go down and you realize you survived, you don't know when rescue is going to come, right? You think you know, but I mean, in your case, it was you documented it so people can watch along, but uh, there must be some real moments of uncertainty there. Yeah, absolutely. And and the uncertainty is is the scariest part. So in in my experience, the 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 relatively short amount of time where it was uncertain when I was going to be rescued or how I was going to be rescued, that was the most terrifying part. 
once you have that communication, um, in my case, I had a satellite messenger and I was communicating with authorities, the, uh, the fear and anxiety drops way off. But for those moments where you, you don't know what's going to happen next or how you're going to get out, that is absolutely the most terrifying part of an ordeal like that. Tell me, take me back a bit to the 27th of July, 2019, because you'd made this, this is not something that you were new to. This is something you, you've done often, but this was a flight from Wabash in Newfoundland. Is that right? And then you're heading towards, towards Quebec. That, that's right. Yep. I was up in, uh, in Lab West in Wabush. Uh, I worked with a company that owned one of the iron mines in that area. And I was uh, traveling from Wabush to Quebec to um, refuel and then uh, leave from Quebec back to Indianapolis and clear customs, probably in Erie, Ohio, um, on my way home. So it's a flight I'd done probably half a dozen times before. It was a beautiful summer day. Um, the weather was perfect. I had an engine conk out. Uh, you know, it was an airplane that was maintained regularly, inspected regularly. And I found myself in a situation where I was 30 minutes from the nearest airport and I started having uh, engine readings that showed that something was wrong. And it took another 10 minutes until the engine failed. But unfortunately, um, since I was 30 minutes away, when, when the engine failed, I was still still in the middle of nowhere. That moment when you realize that, I mean, you're an experienced pilot at this point, you know something's gone wrong, right? Yeah, as soon as I so I was in an airplane that had a sophisticated engine monitor, and I, I saw my oil temp and pressure were off. So immediately my heart sunk, my heart started pounding. I knew something was wrong. Human nature is to go through kind of a denial period. Uh, so I had probably 30 seconds of denying myself it was happening. And then once I accepted the situation, I was in full blown, you know, planning mode. I was looking at my charts, trying to figure out the terrain and, and areas along my route of flight to avoid, you know, in that area of Quebec, there's quite a bit of uh, reservoirs and uh, rough terrain. So I was right. really focused on where I, you know, where I would go down. I was in an airplane that had a airframe parachute. So I knew if my engine died, I could pull the parachute and, and, and parachute down the, the, not me individually, but uh, the airplane. Mm -hmm. But if I, if I went down in the middle of a large reservoir or, you know, in, in the middle of a, you know, mountain peak or something, I knew that would be a bad outcome. It's it's amazing to think that you're, you manage to keep your calm and think through the things you need to do given the circumstances. Well, there's there's kind of two phases to it. One was the phase where I knew something was wrong with the engine. And I was starting to plan, and then there was the phase where the engine conked out. Right. And there, there's there's no way to prepare for that when when the when the engine conks out or, or any emergency. I don't care if it's you know airplane or a car accident or something. You, you don't know how you're going to respond until it actually happens. What I, what I recall was just being uber focused on the task at hand. Um, I was radioing to ATC my coordinates. I was flying the airplane. I was planning for pulling the, the parachute and it was all almost robotic and and very linear. The, the whole period through deploying the parachute, coming in, coming through the trees, had a tree come through the bottom of the airplane, almost impale me. And um, all of that was almost surreal and purely adrenaline until the point where I ran away from the airplane on the ground and the reality of being in the woods by myself hit me. And, and that was the moment to your earlier question where I was really yeah. uh, ter terrified because at that point when I hit the ground, I, the uncertainty sets in and that's where the, the fear sets in until I was able to get my satellite messenger device out of the airplane and start communicating with people that's where the most terror comes in. So, you know, to, to your other story with, with people in the, in the ground that long, it's, it's, it's incredible the, the mental fortitude it would take to deal with that level of uncertainty for that amount of time. And we don't know all the details, but the pilot in that case too seemed to have managed to find a way to, to, to allow people to survive that crash, which in of itself is, is, is remarkable. 
It is. I mean, so in my case, I was, you know, in the woods for about eight hours. I started the day pretty dehydrated. I knew dehydration was my biggest issue. Um, even in the short amount of time I was on the ground, I was already thinking about things like food, like using, you know, even my own waste in terms of hydration, like right. things like that. And, and that was just one day. So I, I can't imagine the, the toughness it takes to, to manage that over 40 days. Excuse me. I mean, it, it clearly takes a, a level of toughness that I've never had to test myself to and most people wouldn't. Matt, you documented a lot of this. And the reason a lot of people know about this story, too, is you documented it on your phone and then you uploaded a lot of that video or some of that video to YouTube. And it was watched a lot. I mean, clearly people have I've watched it a few times already, of course. But there was a purpose to that, too. You wanted people you wanted people to learn something from what you had gone through. What was that? It was really a coping mechanism. I, you know, that's the best way I would describe it. Um, I was on the ground. I just had a a innate feeling that there'd be benefit out of uh, documenting uh, my experience. Um, there was no thought around editing or what the future use of that footage would be. It was just really taking in the moments. And then afterwards, you know, once I got back home and really reflecting on the situation, just having a- immense gratitude for the, the search and rescue people that, that pulled me out, I, I felt compelled to edit that into a video as a as an ode to the rescuers and a thanks to them. It obviously resonated. It got a lot of, a lot of views and you know, hopefully there's there's been people that have learned you know from a preparation standpoint how to how to prepare for situations like that as a flight instructor i definitely use that experience in teaching my students you know how to plan flights how to manage risk and and how to how to pack for the for the uncertain because i think you mentioned at one point in another interview that you'd felt that you you were unprepared when you when you crashed to be where you were for any period of time i mean uh, and that's not i don't think that's uncommon Correct. I was I was prepared from the standpoint of I had the the technology to communicate to get me out of the woods, but I was completely unprepared for multiple days in the woods. I was in shorts, sandals, didn't have uh, ample water, didn't have ample food. Um, I had a basic survival kit. I, I was able to make a fire to make a smoke signal to the airplanes to find me. But if I had to stay any amount of time in the woods, um, I was completely unprepared. Just we sort of cut to we jump to the end of the story here, but within a, within several hours, you are thanks to the technology that you had and the work of search and rescue, you were picked up quite quickly, right? It was it was what six seven hours? Yeah, yep, yeah, exactly. It was about seven hours. Um, I had a Garmin uh, InReach satellite messenger, so mm-hmm. once I was crashed on the ground, as I mentioned before, my moment my moment of terror was not knowing where that satellite messenger was. I was I, I thought right. it was in my pocket. I tried to put it in my pocket while the plane was crashing. And thankfully, it was it was in the pilot seat. It had fallen out of my pocket. And once I retrieved that satellite messenger and started communicating with search and rescue, it was I was just texting people. So it was it was somewhat straightforward in terms of them texting me. You know when the helicopter is going to arrive. You know what to do, what to do next, what to expect. Yeah, so I was very fortunate to have that technology. You're still flying, I know. I mean, it's been nearly four years now. I, I, I don't imagine. What is it like each year when you look back on that day? It must fade a little bit into the past, but uh, the memories must be pretty vivid still every time you get you get up there. It's it's with interviews like this that it brings it back. Naturally, I don't think about it regularly. It's not a, a pleasant thing to think about. What it really does for me is is gives me a feeling of gratitude for mm-hmm. for life, for my family, for the chance to keep flying and to teach others about it. I can only look back on that experience with with just pure gratitude, pure joy. The hours I had by myself in the wilderness, you know, we don't get many times in life where we're completely disconnected. And I was literally completely disconnected. You know, I don't know if a human had ever traversed that 
part of the woods that I was in. I felt knowing I was going to be rescued because I had that technology and sitting in the woods waiting for the rescue to come was some of the most peaceful, actually joyful time of my life, to be honest, Yeah, as weird as that sounds. No, you can't know if you haven't been there, right? I mean, that's the and and to talk about it still. I know it must must bring it back as well. But uh, you choose to talk about it, I guess, so other people will be will know to know to to be prepared, right? It's it's you know you've lived to tell this tale, and others should learn from it. Absolutely. So you know, b- before I took this flight, I did not think twice about the risk of my flights over a remote train, you know, with a single engine airplane. Now I'm able to share that experience with others to help them plan their risk. You know, the video and, and the survival story is is one that can help. You know, it, it brings me a lot of gratitude for life, for my family, for all my blessings. It, I think it hopefully uh, gives that same feeling to others. Anytime a, a near-death experience happens, I think it's, it's a blessing. It's a gift to those that experienced it and those that are party to that story. We, we take a lot of things for granted. And until things are taken away from us or the risk of them taken away, we don't fully appreciate what we have. Yeah, and there's a great picture of you and your family back in Montreal. Actually, not long after this all happened. Yeah, it was. Um, we, we had we had that trip planned, and we were planning to fly in our in our personal airplane to Montreal, which unfortunately we weren't really able to do. We had to go um, commercial. But uh, Quebec's a special place for me as an entrepreneur in a mining business. There, I, I love the people of Montreal and Satil and, and Quebec. I haven't been back actually in a few years with COVID and stuff like that. I'm, course, I'm yeah. looking forward to to getting back um, to visit some of my friends um, and colleagues. Yeah, it was special for me to to get back to Montreal with my family you know, shortly after the crash. The um, air traffic control center that helped me through the whole ordeal is based in Montreal. They sent me a special newsletter from their internal newsletters highlighting the supervisor and the air traffic controller that was on duty when I made my Mayday calls and when I was able my text, my satellite test, text messenger was actually connected to the uh, Montreal ATC. So it was special to be back there, um, given that that's, that's where the team was that, that helped get me out of the woods. Well, Matt, we look forward to welcoming you back on this side of the border again. Thank you so much. Thanks, Ben. I cannot adequately uh, express the sense of honor that I feel in joining the Supreme Court of Canada or my awe at the responsibility that comes with this office of developing and applying all aspects of our law, including the law of our Constitution, in a manner that is faithful to the rule of law, to Canadians' guaranteed rights and freedoms, or to our free and democratic society. That is Justice Russell Brown back in October of 2015. You can find that on the Supreme Court website. It was when it was sort of a a ceremony to honor his arrival on the bench of Canada's Supreme Court. He was Stephen Harper's last nominee uh, back in 2015. And if you watch it now, it's with a certain tinge of sadness because you could see just how First of all, how happy he was to have been appointed, but also how thankful he was. He was funny. He was laid back. He was, you watch and think, wow, that's, that's who you'd like to see on the Supreme Court, right? Well, today he resigned. He resigned for the Supreme Court rather than face a Canadian Judicial Council inquiry into some allegations that surfaced back uh, this winter that he had harassed a woman or women at an Arizona hotel that, and had he been placed on uh, leave since February 1st by Chief Justice Richard Wagner. Now, the circumstances under which this all transpired in Arizona remain very much in dispute. Uh, he had been there attending 
celebrating of another former chief justice uh, and had been at the bar afterwards, allegedly been invited over to sit down with this group, including two women and this one gentleman. And from there, it all kind of went downhill. There was an altercation, apparently, between the 31-year-old former United States Marine Jonathan Crump and uh, Justice Russell, um, or Justice Brown, rather. And from there, you know, the police were called. There were no charges laid. Um, but then there was a complaint filed with the Canadian Judicial Council about uh, Justice Brown's behavior. And, of course, that's always taken very seriously. So he was put on, put on leave at that point. A, a statement from lawyers for Justice Brown today said the decision was the regrettable result of a spurious complaint lodged against Brown by an ex-Marine who was intoxicated and belligerent and punched the justice without provocation and later weaponized Canada's discipline process. That's what they say. They write, we are confident Justice Brown would have been completely vindicated at the conclusion of the CJC's process. However, the effect of the process on the court and the considerable strain on Justice Brown and his family have led him to this decision to retire. Now, keep in mind, he's 57 and he would have been able to to work right up until age 75, that's the new retirement age, on the Supreme Court. So he had many years left in what had been an illustrious career so far. Uh, the lawyers go on to write, today marks the end of an unmistakably regrettable chapter in Canadian legal history. It is extremely disappointing that for the first time in the CJC's history, the complainant's unchallenged accusations were released to the public. It is beyond unfortunate that an unmeritorious complaint brought for the purpose of weaponizing the CJC's process went as far as it did. The resignation, of course, means the CJC no longer has any jurisdiction over uh, Justice Brown and cannot rule on the complaint made against him. So we may never know the full extent of what happened there. It also comes as new legislation designated to change the process by which the council handles allegations against judges um, is about to it needs royal assent, I think, to become law. So changes to that effect coming on. But uh, a big this is a big deal. This is the first time that this has happened. Joining me now is Chris Levy. He's a longtime law professor at the University of Calgary, now retired, but uh, knows this file well. Thanks so much for your time tonight. My pleasure. Surprised at all by the decision to resign, or to retire, I should say. He hasn't yes, resigned. Let's get that He's retired. He is retired. Uh, He's retired. And there's a good reason why it's a retirement uh, connected with pension eligibility. Right, of course. So, uh, but just to, upon the, he would have uh, no entitlement to anything. If he retires, uh, he gets uh, a prorated annuity. Just on the on the on the facts of, of of everything that we've learned, though, were you surprised by his decision to retire? He had many years left uh, on the bench with which he could have uh, continued this. I'm not entirely surprised. No. Um, I mean, enough has come out, I think, that his position on the bench was always going to be a bit difficult if he came back. Uh, public confidence in our judiciary, uh, I think, is extremely important. And uh, whatever transpired in Arizona, um, and there are two radically different versions of those events, um, there is a certain nasty taste, I think, that would be left in the mouths of many Canadians if he went back to the court. So I think he's made uh, a, a very proper decision from a public point of view. Uh, from a private point of view, he has stressed the strain on his family, and uh, I can well believe that. 
the processes of the Judicial Council are by no means speedy, and heaven only knows when this matter would have been resolved in some fashion, uh, so that things could have dragged on for months, or indeed even longer than that. So I, I think he's made the right decision, uh, although his reasoning does tend to sound a bit Trumpian, if I can put it that way. <laughs> Um, you know, I wish yeah. he just simply come out and said, I think it's in the public interest that I go. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that's interesting about this case, I suppose the idea of weaponizing the CJC process, I mean, what always stood out to me about this case was not so much who was telling the truth about what happened, because I think that will still be very much in dispute. I think what happened for Justice Brown, unfortunately, is that he found himself in a situation whereby things got out of hand. And that in of itself would have shown a lack of judgment, which is surprising because he's someone who is always well known for his very good judgment. Yeah, I think that's true. Uh, and uh, I mean, if one can go back into the, the world of the classics, Caesar's wife must be beyond suspicion. We've reached a point now in social evolution where Caesar himself must be beyond suspicion. And that's what I was getting at when I, I was saying there was a, a certain cloud that would inevitably hang over uh, Justice Brown if, if he came back to the bench that might well impair a public confidence. Is the CJC's process, therefore, and you mentioned, I mean, it was a, a speedy process was promised at the outset of this, and, but you mentioned that the CJC's process is by no means speedy to begin with. Uh, we're awaiting new rules to come in. Is it time that these rules were changed? Well, yes. Uh, I, I, I'm glad the CJC takes these matters seriously, uh, but I do think that... Uh, they need to speed things up a little bit. It, 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 it's very difficult to have a judge of, of any court uh, hanging fire. Uh, fair enough, if it's illness, there's nothing we can do about it. But if it's some incident that has led to a complaint to the CJC, I think we do need a, a somewhat swifter process for, for dealing with the matter. You compared this um, earlier today in a note quite um quite in contrast to the process that we see in the U.S. Yes. And, uh, yeah, I mean, and, and, and in a good way, I would think. Very definitely, in my opinion. Uh, I mean, when you look at what may or may not have occurred in Justice Brown's case, and uh, as you say, we shall never really know, I think, what the full truth of the matter is, uh, but the cloud is there. When you look at the cloud that hangs over Justice Thomas, for example, in the United States, for things that I think are much more serious uh, because they verge upon allegations of judicial corruption. Uh, there seems to be no process down there for really dealing with the matter adequately. So I think we can chalk one up for Canada's processes here, even if those processes themselves are not uh, perhaps 100% adequate. Privately, though, as I was mentioning off the top, I was watching that ceremony back in the Supreme Court in 2015 when he was first uh, when he was first appointed, and uh, just the, the pride with which he, he assumed that role. One, you have to feel a bit for for Justice Brown tonight, I would think. Oh, no question of that. As a human being, I feel very sorry for him. I never, well, while I lived in Alberta, I still do. Uh, I, I was at the University of Calgary, and I, I never really knew Russell Brown at all when he was an academic at the University of Alberta. 
Uh, but I certainly feel for him. Uh, on the other hand, um, something happened in Arizona, and he was a part of it, whether he liked it or not. And one has to think that perhaps representing the Supreme Court of Canada, indeed representing Canada at an international conference, um, he might have taken uh, a little more care uh, in the circumstances in which he cho chose to find himself. I think he brings a regional perspective from the West. That's an important um, uh, factor. I think also that, that there's a substantive quality that he brings to his work uh, in terms of uh, the decisions that he's issued that touch on um, uh, privacy and, and individual rights and how they are applied. That is Marco Mendocino, of course, the public safety minister, talking about the retirement announced today by Justice Russell Brown uh, as he was facing some allegations of impropriety or, or <laughs> bad behavior, so to speak, uh, at a hotel in Arizona back in January. He decided today to retire just as he was about to face a Canadian Judicial Council inquiry. Uh, Chris Levy is a longtime law professor at the University of Calgary, now retired. We're talking about the impact of Justice Brown's decision to step away. Um, this is one of those things, I mean, just to remember his impact on the court, and you pointed this out as well earlier in a note, that his impact on the court was quite significant. His absence will be felt. Yes, it will. Um, he, first of all, he's a very bright man. Secondly, he's an extremely articulate writer. Very, very clear. Thirdly, uh, he has a distinctly conservative viewpoint, uh, particularly about the constitutional relationship between the federal government and the provinces. And I think that's an area where his absence will really be felt. Uh, Alberta will feel cheated, quite frankly, but uh, its views on environmental protection and the relationship between the feds and the province uh, will no longer have Russell Brown. Uh, to defend the Alberta point of view. Uh, on the other hand, he wasn't conservative on all matters. Mm -hmm. he, uh, uh, he had a very strong sense, oddly given his background, which had no criminal law in it, but he had a very strong sense uh, of the rights of everyone involved in the criminal process. Uh, the fashion these days seems to be to attach perhaps more and more importance to those uh, injured rather than those accused. Uh, Brown's position uh, tried to keep a balance, a much clearer balance between the rights of the accused and uh, the rights of people who have been injured, damaged, or otherwise suffered. Uh, I was surprised at this. Uh, I think many of uh, academics were, but it's a very real uh, facet of his behavior that will be missed just as much as the more conservative side, uh, where he uh, dissented in the reference relating to gas pollution pricing. He dissented in relation to the uh, Christian oath requirement in the Trinity Western Law School case, um, taking a more traditional conservative position. Uh, but he, he will be missed. He will not be replaced by another Albertan. We can be sure of that. There was quite a screaming match uh, when it became apparent that the two Western members of the Supreme Court were both going to be from Alberta. So uh, Alberta won't get a look in, nor I think will BC. Uh, his replacement is almost certainly going to come from Manitoba or Saskatchewan. And, That'll yeah. be interesting. 
Um, maybe I'm too cynical, but I have noticed very recently uh, that a new Chief Justice of Manitoba has been appointed, Madam Justice Marianne Rivallen, who was transferred from the Federal Court of Appeal to the Manitoba Court as Chief Justice uh, right at the beginning of June. Whether this is to groom her in some way, because she is originally from Manitoba and her early judicial career was in Manitoba, whether this is to groom her as a potential applicant for a position of the Supreme Court if Justice Brown stepped down, which she now has, uh, I don't know. Uh, I wouldn't put it past Mr. Trudeau uh, to have come up with that one. Not that Justice Revilan would be a bad appointment, I might add. I'm far from saying that. Uh, but I'm merely saying that it begins to, to look as if the fix may be in. Indeed, and this is going to be a delicate one for the Prime Minister as well, because he'll have recognized Justice Brown's um, pensions, so to speak, or at least his, his leanings, and we'll have to watch out to make sure it doesn't look like he's turning uh, the Canadian Supreme Court into too much of a reflection of you know, the Liberal Party's beliefs. I mean, that's always a delicate balance. Yes, I think uh, that's to be wondered at. I mean, Trudeau is unpredictable in these appointments. Probably the most conservative judge on the Supreme Court is Malcolm Rowe from Newfoundland, right. and he's a Trudeau appointment. Well, Chris, uh, we'll, we'll, leave, we'll leave it at that. Thank you so much for your insight on this. It's been a big day in, in the court's history, and, and it's going to have some repercussions, and we're going to see that unfold over the next few months. Thank you so much for taking the time to, uh, to look into this with me tonight. My pleasure. I was reading this interesting article today that Google has been enforcing its hybrid working policy by tying required in-office days to employee performance reviews, can you imagine? So basically, if you decide to work remote only and the more you come into the office or if you come into the office for the requisite number of days as you're supposed to, it reflects on your performance review and it's a minimum three days per week. Um, and we've been noticing a lot of companies sort of struggling through this time because you know, a lot, I mean, and if you work downtown as I do, you know that we're not back at full capacity, any nowhere near. I mean, inner cities, whether it be Vancouver or or Victoria or Montreal or, or Montreal, where I've been recently, it is still really not back to full capacity at all. So you know, a lot of people are still working remotely. How you do it and how we reorganize the workforce in this way after that sudden shift during the pandemic has become a topic of, of much discussion because clearly here in Canada, we have a demographic issue. We have a labor shortage, at least we have for quite a while now. Uh, certainly in the knowledge economy, the world is is one's oyster. If you want to go look for workers wherever they happen to work, you can accommodate them if you're willing to let them work remotely. And that works for Canada as a whole as well. If you know, you could work for a tech company in Ottawa and, and live in live in New Brunswick if you wanted to, where real estate prices are less expensive. There are many different creative ways in which remote work can really help the Canadian economy, specifically uh, for knowledge workers. Obviously, people who you know who don't non hands on sorts of jobs. There are many many jobs in this country that people simply have to do in person, and we respect and understand that as well. And and you know that's that's a different discussion to be had too, because there needs to be some fairness here in all of this as well. Um, but again, we're hearing a lot about these mandated returns to office for many Canadians. Uh, well, around the world, many organizations are shifting to sort of a borderless workforce, and that allows them to find the best and brightest wherever uh, wherever they may be. And it also levels the, the 
the playing field a little bit. Uh, and when you factor in all those different issues in Canada right now, having a proper strategy here just makes sense, right? If, if remote work and flexibility helps attract the kind of workers that companies need, it simply makes sense to figure out how to do it well. Uh, Penny Wise is the president of 3M Canada, and um, she's very vocal on this because they're an organization, a company that's really had to try to tackle this. And uh, she joins me now to talk about it. Penny, thank you so much. Thank you. Tell me a bit about your interest in this topic, because I, I imagine in your position, this is something you have to think about, well, you and your team have to think about uh, a lot, which is how to retain, how to recruit, where are those workers, what can they do? What, what's, what has sparked your interest in talking about this now? You know, it's been a topic, an ongoing topic of conversation, I think, for Canada for quite some time. And the fact that the demographics are of Canada are rapidly changing and drastically changing and uh, when you look at statistics like today, mm -hmm. there are actually six times fewer people who are under 15 years old in Canada than people over 65. That is a pretty big number for us to consider, uh, especially as you want to think about the future of Canada and our economic growth. I, I think coming out of the pandemic, you know, we're all looking towards what does an industrial strategy look like and what does the future growth of Canada look like? And we need to have a strong view to our growth and economic footprint for the future, but we also need to have the people with the right skills and knowledge to make it happen. So I think all business in Canada is really thinking about what does that look like for the future and how do we make sure we have the right talent and the right people to support that Canadian growth for the future. What has it been like for 3M? Are you finding it challenging finding people? I mean, obviously a multinational company, but you have a footprint here in Canada. What's it been like? What kind of challenges are you facing that, say, you wouldn't have faced five, ten years ago? Great question, because, you know, I think that the challenges have evolved as we've moved through the pandemic and come out of the pandemic. And as we think about the shifting, the shifting demographics, uh, I think that as we as the, the challenges, again, that all of us are facing as businesses, I think there are a few things. One is you know, making sure we have full participation in the economy and making sure that we are removing barriers so that uh, underrepresented populations like women or Indigenous peoples, that we are giving full access to them. I use women as an example. Women are 50% of the population and should be 50% of the workforce or should be adequately reflected through all levels of an organization, uh, regardless of, of where you are across Canada. Um, there's a, a need to address immigration in Canada, to modernize it to a new reality of the kinds of workers that we need to fill a lot of these roles. But perhaps the biggest one, and the one that we think about at 3AM as uh, creating opportunity for growth, for a future, for our people, is this idea around flexibility, which only became amplified through the pandemic. And when I think about flexibility, I think about it in a couple of different ways. I think about it in terms of flexibility of how someone works day to day and how they balance their, their work and their home life. And then I also think about flexibility in terms of how can someone achieve their career goals and, and continue to manage how they are. So, so that I think those are the big pieces that we have been thinking about. And um, flexibility, I think, is one of the, the areas that everyone can work on. And we've been thinking about it from a, how we address that challenge in Canada as we move forward as 3M. 
Right, which which must be a bit of a challenge for companies such as yours, which both manufacture and have a whole infrastructure built to to help to support that, because you have people clearly who have to be on site to do their jobs, and people who don't. So you have to come up with. I mean, therein lies the challenge, right? How do you how do you make it fair and flexible at the same time? Absolutely, and and the reality is, you 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 said it right, right? We have you know about eighteen hundred people who work for three M in Canada. More than half of them are manufacturing employees. And the reality is, when you're a manufacturer, you make things, and you have to be there, and you have to be on the line, and you have to be making. So, so it is a it is a different kind of flexibility from those individuals who might be in the office, and it certainly is easier to provide broader flexibility to our office place workers. We've been looking at our office workers since 2016. And uh, we've been actually at 3M globally, we've been talking about flexibility since 2016. So long before the pandemic struck, and suddenly everybody was working from home. But in the last couple of years, we've actually extended our flexibility policy, so that uh, we have what we call a work your way program. And this means that our business side employees, our office workers have the option of being full time remote, or they can be hybrid between their home and office, or they can be in the office, whatever suits their way of working. And this provides flexibility for those office workers on their day-to-day work, what time they start, how they balance home and work, and how they get work done. And we know and trust that employees are getting their work done. The other piece of flexibility that it's done is it's really leveled the playing field for them with their coworkers and their colleagues around the world. 3M Canada is part of a global 3M network. And we have teams that are very global in how they work. So now our Canadian workers actually have options to have different kinds of careers. We have a significant portion of our workforce who work on North American or global roles without having to leave the country. So we get those brains and we keep them here in country. And for our our employees who are in our, our factories and our manufacturing sites, Again, flexibility looks different and learned through the pandemic of how to trade off shifts, how to manage things. And and we're still continuing to look at ways of what flexibility that we can continue to evolve and provide for them. Penny Wise is with us, president of 3M Canada. We're talking about many things, the adaption, the adaptation that many big companies, including multinationals like 3M, have had to go through as the sort of the face of the workforce, the desires of what the workforce is looking for, particularly in the knowledge economy, how it shifted as the pandemic, as we worked our way through the pandemic. Um, Penny, your company obviously has a bigger footprint here now than we did five, six years ago. And that has its own challenges as well, I would imagine. But you're looking at this more broadly. You think the government needs that all levels of government need to step in here and sort of come up with some kind of plan is that, how would that work that is a ongoing discussion Indeed. across many groups yes. <laughs> you know i do think it's i actually believe it is a, a partnership that it's not just government we need you to do this but i think it's a partnership between you know academia business and government in order to make sure that we have the right kinds of workers for the future for Canada, and that there are things that can be done kind of through each one of those groups to make sure that we have the right kinds of workers for the future. If we, if we think about 
I'm the co-chair of the Council for Women's Advocacy through the Canadian Chamber of Commerce. And we spend a lot of time talking about what do we need to do for women? So how do we support the success of women-owned businesses because they're less than 20% of privately owned businesses in Canada? How do we support corporate Canada in their DE&I programs? Or how do we reach young women before they make career choices to engage them in STEM? Or how do we help reskill women so that we are in high growth, high impact sectors? And where does government play a role in that? And where does business and academia play a role in that? So um, a great example from for, for women and flexibility was this how do we get to quality, uh, available $10 a day daycare? And obviously the federal government put into place $10 a day daycare in the, in the recent past. And now it's working on the execution as it moves through the provinces. That is social infrastructure that needs to be in place. And at the same time, you know, I talked about working with corporations to make sure that their DE&I programs, they're focused on inclusion, that they're thinking about programs to bring on board women leaders or how they accelerate people through their organizations or what their middle and senior management look like or what their board needs to look like or do they need to set a, a quota of for their board so looking at that and then academia making sure that as young women are journeying through elementary and high school and into university that the right bar- or the barriers have been removed so that they want to stay in STEM, so that they're understanding science or technology or engineering or math, and that they want to stay in that because those lead to many of the high growth, high sector jobs. So again, that was a very broad answer to say that it's a partnership it's a between topic. all yeah. aspects. It is, absolutely. Indeed. And your career yeah. in many ways is, has reflected part of the part of the challenge. I mean, you've, you, you've been in many of the places that, that have traditionally have had challenges attracting women into those, into the industries. You're in hardware and you're here. Uh, these are areas where, you know, you, you, you've blazed a bit of a trail and it's not an easy thing to do, I know. I will admit that I have definitely been in some challenging industries along my career path, but 3M has actually been an amazing company to work for from an elevating women, recognizing inclusion, being very focused on diversity and equity and making sure that we are reflective of the population in the countries where we are and that it's uh, an incredibly inclusive organization. And I think that inclusion actually, you know, I talked a little bit about work your way and this flexibility and giving people that opportunity to connect globally. You know, 3M has been a company that inclusion has been one of the elements at the forefront of who we are as our culture for 120 years. And even this idea of flexibility and remote work and building global teams, we do believe that diverse ideas diverse points of view, they make our ideas better. They right. bring more to the table and they make things more robust and, and that our culture will evolve and, and this, this connection and this global connectivity that we're driving through flexibility and work your way will actually make us even more inclusive and more diverse. And I'm really right. excited about the future that's ahead. Of course, you do this not necessarily out of the goodness of 3M's heart. You have shareholders and so on. This is about this is about bottom line stuff. This is about finding the workers you need, and they're out there. You have to encourage them and find them. How does the flexible work thing fit into this? Uh, with within, uh, I mean, when I look at the way flexible work has been treated, it feels like we've. I mean, clearly you you've been up to it since 2016. But a lot of companies sort of fell into it, made do, figured out how to do it, what worked, what didn't. Each company is different. Clearly, when it comes to remote work, it feels very scattered still. Like we sort of fell into it and now. We're kind of falling out of it, and it feels like we need to do something a little bit better to structure it. What what might that look like from where you sit? I think it starts with diversity, equity, and inclusion. If we start with inclusion, if we start with understanding 
what we need to do and how we need to organize ourselves and how we need to get the right workers and how we include them. That is, I think, the starting point. And when an organization builds their approach to inclusion, when they understand the demographics of what's happening in Canada and the shift of what's happening and where they need to find workers and and they build a strong inclusion platform or they build a strong platform that encourages people to join their organization. I think what people want is evolving and we need to be really in tune with what people want uh, as part of that evolution. What was okay five or six years ago and really exciting for people to come and stay and work is different today and we need to evolve that. And so I think that's really an important part of our overall employee engagement, employee attraction strategy that has to be evolved. Right. And, and looking at flex work through through an inclusion lens is interesting because it's not often how it's, I mean, it's often how it's described within the corporate world. It's not often how it's described outside of it. It's about, you know, I don't like to, you know, I like to be able to pick up my kids and not have to commute. And it's sort of put through plain language, but it is it is ultimately all about, about making sure your employees feel like they're included and, and regardless of what their personal and familial situations are. Absolutely. And and that is exactly it. It is inclusive when we give you the flexibility of I'm going to go pick up my children from the bus stop. I will be back in half an hour and then I will continue working. Right. That is the, the flexibility and the inclusion that people are looking for. So people can bring their whole mind share and their whole best self to work when they come to work and when they're with teams and that they're not distracted and they're completely focused. And, and I think that where we win as a, an organization. That's where we win as a country. That's where we win with our knowledge workers. So what next on this one? Because it feels like we talk about it. We know it's out there. We know what the problem is. We know what we've known for ages, what the demographics were going to be. Uh, you know, there's many things afoot to try to make up for the lack of knowledge workers out there, or at least the, you know, the competitiveness for knowledge workers out there. What do you think a good first step would be then in all this? A great first step is to sit back and understand what kind of flexibility do your teams need? What do you need inside the organization? How do your people work? How do you want to grow? How do you want to include people? And embracing that it's a little bit different and that culture is going to shift. I think that's one of the challenges for a lot of businesses is the culture will be different than it was before. And so how do we embrace that culture? How do we define what we want the culture to look like moving forward? And what are the elements we put in place to pull that culture forward? Right. Because, of course, a lot of CEOs out there are kind of like, I liked having all my employees under one roof or at least under my one big tent. And I'd like to see them all come back because that's our culture. And I don't think that's going to happen anymore. Culture is evolving and, and we have the opportunity to shape the culture and drive the culture forward and create those virtual moments as well as those in-person moments and decide you know, where and how you need those. Well, Penny, thank you so much for your insight on this. It is, a, it is unique. Thank you, Ben. This is an interesting story that caught my eye in a magazine article a little uh, last week that I was reading. Uh, one of the biggest causes of poisoning, medication poisoning, in kids these days happens to be melatonin. Now, I know melatonin because during the pandemic, the height of the pandemic, when we were all under lockdown, like so many people, I was having a, a lot of trouble sleeping. I think a lot of us did. And a friend of my mom's recommended melatonin, right? It comes in those gummy forms. You can buy it just about anywhere. Um, it's not regulated. It's considered a supplement. Now, it saw, it saw a huge surge in popularity beginning more than a decade ago. Sales in the U.S. alone grew from uh, $216 million in 2016 to $820 million in 2020. And that was before 
basically, I mean, as the pandemic would continue. So the idea is it's even more popular now. So perhaps it's not a huge surprise that parents also started giving melatonin to their kids to help them with their sleep issues. Um, and again, that's led to a rise in pediatric ER admissions with doctors reporting more cases of children suffering from the effects of too much medication. Uh, again, melatonin. It doesn't cause, I mean, the reactions can vary, but it's not in generally not too, too severe, you know, drowsiness, uh, nausea and so on, but still cause for concern. Here are a couple of reports that came out last week that really caught my eye um, that over the Previous 10 years, the number of annual calls to poison control for pediatric melatonin overdoses had risen by 530%. By 2020, poison control was receiving more calls about pediatric overdoses on melatonin than any other substance. Keep in mind, the overdose numbers for other substances plummeted during the last decade. Tylenol down 53%, opioids down 54%, many cough and cold medications down 72%. So parents are radically aware of trying not to give their kids too much of anything, except it seems melatonin. So what exactly is going on? To help us with this is Dr. Michael uh, Reeder. He's a professor with the Department of Pediatrics, Physiology, and Pharmacology and Medicine at Western University. Uh, Dr. Reeder, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Ben. I, this is an interesting one because I think a lot of us, uh, specifically during the pandemic, when all of, I think a lot of people are having trouble sleeping, sort of turned to melatonin because it was recommended through word of mouth and so on. But what exactly is it? Melatonin is a hormone. We make it in a gland in the brain, and it's part of our natural circadian rhythm. So it goes up and down and helps to regulate sleep. What's a natural, naturally occurring hormone has gained a lot of popularity in the last 10 years for use in sleep, which some of it is justified and some of it, to be honest, is not. Right. I mean, is it effective in adults? I guess we could we could start with, with, the, with the general population. It's effective for certain indications. So it's pretty good evidence that it works well if you get jet lagged. So we have a circadian rhythm. So things go up and down based on when we sleep. And that circadian rhythm is regulated by melatonin. So if we throw it off for some reason, like flying to Hong Kong or something, and come back and you know get all our, our circadian rhythm is thrown off because we were awake for when we shouldn't have been and asleep when we shouldn't have been, then melatonin has been shown to be helpful for short-term use in resetting your circadian rhythm. For other things, the evidence is much less. So if you just can't sleep because you can't sleep, there's probably not a lot of evidence that it actually works in those conditions. I've noticed, of course, uh, that it's you know you, it's it's out on the racks at the pharmacy, and there's lots of it, mm -hmm. and it's hard to figure out exactly. They come in different doses. I mean, it's essentially a bit of a wild west thing with with melatonin when you're buying it. That's right. Well, in, in North America, it is. If you go to Europe, in a lot of countries in Europe, the UK, for instance, it's a prescription only medication. Okay. So in North America, it's the wild, wild west, because you're right. I mean, you can go into all kinds of preparations. There's two problems with that. The first is the average consumer, the average person on the street doesn't know quite what to take because there's, you know, because it's, it's, it's sold as a supplement. The second is quality control is not the same. So if you buy melatonin, say you go to a chemist shop in, you know, I live in London, Ontario, the other London, London, England. Right. Go to a chemist shop there and get a, a 10 milligram uh, melatonin, it's going to be somewhere between 9.5 and 10.5 milligrams of melatonin for sure. Because the, they reg the, the Brits, like, like us and like the Americans, regulate prescription drugs really carefully. So you walk down the street in Victoria to a shop and buy a 10 milligram melatonin. Well, there could be 5 milligrams, it could be 15 milligrams. And if you're really lucky, it'll be 10 milligrams. But the quality control on supplements is not the same. What that leads us to then, of course, is that when adults use something that they think works, and of course, kids have trouble sleeping, 
I, I mean, it was interesting because this goes back now eight years when you were last at, when I last saw you quoted about this. But uh, mm. there was a really large number, considering quite a large number of, of parents giving melatonin to their kids out there. I think that came as a surprise to a lot right. of people. Oh no, you're quite right. The surprise us for sure. Because when we were working with our colleagues, uh, Dirk Bach, our colleague in, in general pediatrics and, and our colleagues in the emergency department here at Children's Hospital of Western Ontario, we did a study asking kids who showed up with EMR for, for a variety of reasons, asking their parents if they use sleep aids. We're surprised to discover that almost 25% using some kind of sleep aid, most commonly melatonin, which really surprised us. But yeah, it uh, was a bit of a shocker. What I mean, and now we've seen, you know, fast forward eight years, and I guess, and this is the reason, one of the reasons uh, is there's been an article published recently that was looking at sort of the the spike in adverse events involving kids in melatonin, specifically in the U.S. But what can you say about that? What's happening? Well, I think what's happening is, I think you, you, you know, when you we first started a conversation, you mentioned the pandemic, and I think you're right. I think during the pandemic, a lot of things got thrown off, kids' activity, kids' sleep rhythm, et cetera. So people trying to get back to it are trying to see, well, what can I do to help my my, ch- my child sleep? And sleep problems are really common in, in children, in part because of the kind of busy world we live in, and in part because of, I think it's a part of a lack of, rec- of recognition, maybe about the importance of things like routine, and also the importance of the fact of how much sleep kids sleep. So there's nothing more frustrating. I mean, we've had lots of kids through our house, uh, because we, we had our own hassle of kids, and then we were foster parents for 20 years. So we've had mostly the infants. So we've had a lot of kids through the house. So I get it. Babies aren't always the best at sleeping when you want them to sleep. Parents are busy and frustrated, and they, well, what can help them sleep? So people try to turn to things, and and the melatonin industry has, you know, been sort of, you know, through social media and other methods, kind of promoting the message that, you know, melatonin is is a, a sleep hormone, and it is for kids who have sleep circadian rhythm disturbances, like the people who personally talked about going to Hong Kong and getting jet lags. It probably works. Other kids, it probably doesn't. So I think that is a problem. I wasn't aware, though, that there could be, you know, this was reports of ERs, you know, kids showing up at ERs with ad, you know, adverse events, some pretty serious side effects of this. And I just wasn't yeah. aware that melatonin could have that kind of impact uh, on anyone, uh, let alone, I mean, obviously, in this case, children, right? Right. Well, part of it is dosage, because right. if you look at doses, so, and you see these melatonin products are saying, you know, 10 milligrams per chewable capsule. Well, the problem with that is, in the adult literature, it suggests that the dose for an adult is somewhere between 5 and 10 milligrams. So that's for a 70 kilogram, fully developed, fully grown adult male. So if you're a 10 kilogram toddler, should you take 10 milligrams? And I would argue you're taking probably like four or five or six times the right dose. It is a little troubling when you see that, but part of it is because it's an unregulated industry. So again, looking at our colleagues across the pond, in Britain, a parent wouldn't give that because no doctor had a prescription for that much medication. But here, there's no doctor's writing prescriptions. You're going in the health food store and going by your gut and, and maybe what the pharmacist asks you if you ask her about it. But most parents don't, I think. I think it's a problem because there's a lot big, there's a lot of social media stuff out there. And the alternative, and there's alternatives to melatonin, actually a lot of alternatives to drugs, but they're hard. And I think people aren't necessarily going to look for the hard solution. So, Dr. Reeder, when, when a child takes too much of it, what happens? I mean, because I think that's what sort of jumped off the page to me in that article I was reading recently. Well, you know, melatonin, it's, it's, it's not a occurring hormone. So in correct doses, it's not going to have too, too many side effects. But the problem with side effects of melatonin is, is it can cause if excess doses. And we talked before the break about how you know, 10 milligrams is a lot for, is a dose for an adult, not a child. Right. You can get a headache. They get nausea, stomach upset. They get crabby. They can get, you get a bit of a dry mouth as well. So all things are going to make a child very unhappy, especially a toddler or a preverbal child. 
So lots of unpleasant things that are going to make the child seem unwell and, and doesn't surprise me will wind up the, the family in the emergency department. When we look at what's in fact, uh, if, if you went by the letter of the recommendations, you know, the ones that are in fact licensed for teenagers or approved for kids, uh, what's out there? What should parents know about melatonin generally when it comes to kids? Well, I think generally, if you're going to use melatonin, you need to think about, first of all, it should be short term. And it's really done to correct your circadian rhythm disturbance. And the dose needs to be established, need to be around that fact. So the dose is not, the, the melatonin dose for, say, an adolescent is not going to be high. It's going to be somewhere in the range of the adult dose, so a five milligram dose or so. And that's going to be like five milligrams once a day. It's not going to be repeated doses. You know, the, the, the mel- so the melatonin doses you're going to be giving are going to be fairly low and they're going to be infrequent. And you're going to wonder, you also have to wonder about interactions because melatonin actually does interact with other, with, with other drugs you might be taking. Probably less of an issue in kids. But for instance, if you're an adult, it can it can actually alter you. If you're taking a blood pressure medication, it can be bad for you. Right. It can affect your sugar levels. It can alter 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 things if you're taking drugs for seizures, or if you're taking drugs, for instance, because you need to have an anticoagulant. So in the past, I would have said probably less of an issue. But many of the kids who have sleep disorders have other medical problems. So we're we're in an age now where common pediatric. I mean, I've been in pediatrics a long time. I trained in Detroit in the 1980s. And many of the problem, pediatric problems we, we saw have been resolved with things like vaccination and, and you know, many drugs, which is wonderful. But what we've done is created a new set of problems because kids who used to not be with us that long are now with us longer and they have many more chronic problems. It's good they're with us longer, but they have many chronic problems. So they wound up on a lot of medication. So you used to think that, you know, polypharmacy or use of a lot of drugs is only a problem in adults, but it's now a lot of kids are on medication. So those are the very kids that get a lot of sleep trouble. So you got to be careful with the drug-drug interactions, which nobody thinks about because melatonin is a natural hormone. And natural, and the problem with saying natural is safe is that that's making a, a big assumption because natural is natural. There's lots of natural things that are dangerous. I think that is a problem because melatonin in its right dose is an effective hormone, but it's in its right dose, which is not a high dose. I, I suppose parents should speak to a if they can. I mean, part, part of the problem here is, is too little doctors to go to for advice, but they should speak to a pediatrician before giving it to their kids, I, I suspect, that at the very least. Well, I think they should do that, and they should also think about non-drug approaches. So I'm a clinical pharmacologist, and as a, as a pharmacologist, I'm, I'm a bit of what I would call a therapeutic nihilist. So sometimes the best drug for something is no drug. And a lot of the sleep problems can be addressed by addressing sleep routines, and there are actually pretty good resources. So the Sleep Foundation has a resource uh, online. It's got a, lot, uh, a series. And if you look at, if you do a Google search, Sleep Foundation Baby Sleep, to put those two words together, you're going to wind up with the Sleep Foundation's website, which has a number of, of important resources. Uh, for instance, there's people like Graham Reed, who's a friend of mine, who's a very a big expert on pediatric sleep. Mm-hmm. Uh, other people who are talking about what can you do, what non-drug approach can you use? So how do you sort of reprogram a child when they're going to sleep, what are the approaches you use that don't involve, you know, medication, but involve sort of, you know, behavioral therapy and, and, and altering the child's routine. And those approaches are all non-drug, so they're free. Um, they do about involve a bit of work, but they're also more likely to be long-term effective. Right. I guess there is no magic pill. I mean, therein lies the, the, the age-old thing is there is no magic pill that makes everything better. Should we well, regulate it like the Brits do? Should we, <clears throat> should we think of, uh, and this is writ large, should we look at, at treating melatonin the way that, the, that the, 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 they do elsewhere? I think it's not a bad idea. I mean, it's not, it's not, a, it's not, a, it's not a risk-free product. I know that, I mean, the issue is, is the, you know, there's a fairly, there's, there's a very large natural products industry in Canada, 
which has been a pretty successful industry. And I'm sure they're not crazy about being more regulated more than they already are because they're already more regulated than our colleagues and our, our, our counterparts in the U.S. are. Right. I think this might be one area where a bit of regulation wouldn't do a, wouldn't be a bad thing. I think generally in, in in a lot of areas in Canada, we actually lag a bit in, in the area of, of regulation. I mean, it brings to mind our, our which is a not unrelated, somewhat unrelated problem, but the whole issue of medical marijuana for kids. Right. You can be authorized to get it, but there's, you know, there's the wild, wild western who's what product you get because it's not actually a prescription drug. It's an authorized drug, which places it in this weird status where parents can't get insurance to pay for it. And the visit practitioners have a hard time finding a good supply. I think maybe if you tighten regulations up around those pediatric medications, and I'm hoping that Health, Health Canada is talking about modernizing its pediatric rules because they're about 30 years behind the, the mark. I'm hoping maybe some of that stuff will be coming out. Well, Dr. Reeder, thank you so much for your insight on this. I appreciate it. Well, thank you very much, Ben. And I hope you enjoy your uh, things in, in Victoria, one of the nicest cities to visit in Canada. And I hope to hope to be out there sometime soon. Good pace. Are you serious? Oh, my goodness! Glorious and free! We're storming the 18th green now. They just tackled Adam Hadwin, by the way, who was trying to approach his friend. There you have it. I mean, there was so much drama in about that 15 seconds. It was hard to describe, but it was Canadian golf unlike you'd ever see in Canadian golf. That was the jaw-dropping end to the RBC Canadian Open yesterday as Abbotsford's Nick Taylor sank an astounding 72-foot 72 foot eagle to claim the title and end Canada's 69-year drought at the Canadian Open. Uh, it was a boisterous home crowd that erupted as he sank uh, the winner, many running on to the 18th green to celebrate, including, as was mentioned there, fellow Canadian pro Adam Hadwin, who grew up with Nick Taylor. He was tackled by security as he was spraying champagne. That picture has been seen absolutely everywhere. Uh, here's how Taylor described the atmosphere and that putt. There's a lot of luck for that to go in the hole. Um, the speed is always looking about, you know, Tommy probably had about 12 feet and I expected him to make it almost like the first playoff hole. So I was trying to get as close as I could to essentially know that he had to make or miss to, to keep going. Um, so for that to drop is, was a huge surprise, but an amazing one. The crowd support was the most unbelievable thing I've probably ever experienced in my life. Um, to kind of break that curse, if you want to call it, is... Uh, I'm pretty speechless. I, I I don't I don't think it's going to sink in for quite some time. What uh, what happened today? Yeah, the 35 year old is the first Canadian to win the Canadian Open since Pat Fletcher in 1954 at Vancouver's Point Grey Golf and Country Club, and the only Canadian born or the last Canadian born champion was Carl Keffer all the way back in 1914. Most of Canada's professional golfers uh, refer to the Canadian Open as their fifth major. They've been waiting for years to end this drought. Um, fellow PGA Tour player Adam Hadwin, who we talked about earlier, again, he grew up playing with Taylor in Abbotsford, and he was the one who was tackled. He, his, he later apologized to the security guard, I guess. I mean, it was just hard to tell who was who, and there were people all over the place, but he just sort of ran onto the green with champagne, and it was such an exciting moment. Uh, here's what he had to say afterwards. One of the greatest moments of Canadian golf history. I think we all predicted that this was going to happen. Um, I'm not sure that any one of us predicted a 72-foot eagle putt in a fifth-hole playoff to, to get it done, but um, what a way to go. 
And standing not too far away was Mike Weir, who won a Masters, of course. He nearly won the Canadian Open back in 2004, so it's been 19 years since we came that close, but he nearly won a Canadian Open back in 2004, losing in a playoff to Vijay Singh. Here's how he described yesterday's victory. It's incredible. I mean, my heart's pumping still for him. I mean, that's just uh, an amazing finish. He played great, you know, to start the week the way he did and come back and win this tournament. testament to him. Yeah, standing not too far away was Kevin Blue. He's Chief Sport Officer with Golf Canada, and he joins me now. Kevin, thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. So, I mean, you were there. Right? So what was the atmosphere like on that? I mean, what was it like to be standing there watching this all unfold? High tension, the, you know, the hopes of thousands of people sort of on every shot and a very cathartic celebration once the putt went in. It was just a unique thing to experience and you know, all of us who cheer for Canadian players were uh, overjoyed when when it happened. Did you have any inkling? I mean, it had been a really close fought playoff, and um, you know, Fleetwood was. You know, it, it looked like. Yeah. Anyway, the, the the putt itself. I mean, really, wow. Yeah, the putt. I mean, from seventy plus feet, the make percentage on the PGA Tours is like one or one and a half percent, and uh, the probability of a three putt is around 30%. So, you know, in that situation, Nick is, he's obviously on the green at two and, and um, the sort of most likely outcome is that he makes a two putt birdie, which would have provided him with the opportunity to win had, had Fleetwood missed his, his birdie opportunity. But, you know, Tommy's on a similar line as he had earlier in the playoff. And so you're thinking just, you know, get it up there close, Nick, and tap it in and let's keep going. And and when the putt disappeared, I think people couldn't really believe it. And, uh, you know, a, a cathartic celebration ensued and it was pretty special. How far away were you when all this was happening? And and, and what was that moment like? I, I mean, from the outside, it looked, it looked a bit like pandemonium when he actually sunk the putt because everyone just stormed onto the green, right? Yeah, I mean, I was standing just just off the, you know, in the back, uh, a good ways away from the the hole, but on the other side of the green and w- with a number of other people that were assembled there, including some of the, you know, Canadian, f- his fellow uh, touring professionals in, um, you know, Adam Hadwin, Corey Connors and Mike Weir. Right. And yeah, when it went in, I mean, people just just the the fact that we we finally have a Canadian male winner of the National Open. And in the way it happened, it was, uh, you know, people did uh, excitedly lose their composure in a positive way. But, you know, it, it's just one of those things that you just didn't expect to happen in the way it did. And it and it did. And people were obviously pretty happy about it. I know. I mean, I, that, what's been amazing about it is, you know, the Canadian for the Canadian Open is that not only has the putt been seen, the tackle has been seen, of course, many times over again. Uh, but, you know, obviously today, Adam Hadwin was was, you know, completely he did. It was just in the moment. Right. But it just gave you an idea of, of how much it meant to all the players assembled there. I mean, Mike Weir had come closest, I guess, nearly 20 years ago now. And uh, wow, you said you used the word cathartic. I mean, how much has this, I wouldn't say weighed on, but how much have Canadian players been anticipating a win at the Canadian Open since since, since you've been around? Yeah, I would say very significantly is it's something that's on everybody's minds. They, you know, the, the players are, have, are asked about it every time the Canadian Open comes around at RBC Canadian Open press conference. And we've got people asking them about 1954 and... Yeah. And uh, so, so I think that, you know, I think that uh, especially with the, the depth of the players that we currently have on the PGA Tour, 
there, there is, there was increased optimism and, and anticipation for, for, for it happening. And, uh, and it did. And, uh, and, you know, obviously all of the Canadian players, you know, Nick and his colleagues, it's right up there with major championships in terms of what they look forward to. I think Nick yesterday in his interview called it, you know, the, the, it's kind of fifth on the list behind the majors as far as the ones that they look forward to winning. And uh, it's a unique challenge to win the RBC Canadian open uh, as a Canadian, because the energy and the tension of everyone in the crowd pulling for you, it adds a sort of unique dimension of pressure that, that golfers don't usually uh, encounter and for it to all happen yesterday and for it to happen in the way it did is just, it's quite storybook. Yeah. I think someone referred to it as the fifth major for Canadian players, right? It's that, it's that important. Yeah. I was curious about that because all day yesterday and, and even the day before, I mean, the crowd was really, really into it. And I was wondering, you know, boisterous crowds can either help or hurt when you're trying to focus, right? Was this, I mean, obviously yesterday it was referred to as a, as a help, right? I mean, that was the, you know, that was seen as being something that, that propelled Nick to victory but man there's a lot of pressure when everyone's chanting your name and singing singing oh canada and so on yeah it's it's a unique challenge because of the fact that you know it's a it is a home game so to speak for for the canadian players and and on the pga tour that dynamic doesn't really exist uh as much in other tournaments even at major championships which are highly pressure filled you know often it's not a dynamic where the crowd is cheering for one specific person because of it being a you know a home event for them and even when there is a situation where most of the crowd is cheering for one player, it's it's it doesn't come with the added historical sort of significance of a 69-year drought in yeah. the Men's National Open. So it is, you know, the the, the players clearly, uh, and they 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 say this all the time. They really really love playing the RBC Canadian Open because of the 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 support from the home crowd. But it is a unique dynamic that that's it's it is interesting and and. Can be difficult to handle, but obviously Nick handled it beautifully yesterday. Yeah, we just need a Stanley Cup now. We can. That's probably the longest drought out there after this <laughs> one was done away with. What was it like to have Mike Weir there? Because, of course, I remember Mike Weir uh, losing in 2004. I think a lot of us do because that was, I mean, it seemed that Mike was going to be the closest one to to win at the time. It seemed almost inevitable, inevitable that it didn't happen. But he was there and man, he sounded really excited about all this. Yeah, I mean, Mike is a obviously a special figure in Canadian golf history, especially on the men's side, uh, being a Masters champion and being a really elite player. You'll remember at the time in 2004, he was a top five player in the world, and, right. and so was Vijay Singh, who eventually won that playoff. Mike has paved the way for the current generation of players to be as competitive as as they are right now and for Mike to be there and for Mike to show his support in, in the way that he did yesterday is is special and and you know the current crop of players continues to look up to Mike in ways that are that are really uh special and unique so you know obviously everybody everybody loves Mike what he's done as a as a sort of a recent pioneer in the men's professional game and and the effect that it's had on the current generation of players is uh, is is profound the timing couldn't have been better either because even i last week we did an interview we don't do a lot of golf stories on the show we did one last week about live and pga and you know and then, then rory mcelroy came out on wednesday and talked about it overshadowing uh the, the rbc championship and then all of a sudden you get this like this incredible drama at the end and then the golf world starts talking about golf again at least temporarily and i think that was must have been good not just for canadian golf but for the tournament and golf in general Absolutely. I mean, I think the RBC Canadian Open stood up again as it did last year as a 
as an extraordinary championship. A number of people around the golf world, I think, were overjoyed and happy to see uh, the you know the special and unique circumstances in which the the championship ended yesterday. And you know, from a Canadian perspective, we're obviously very happy with the outcome and the result. But it was just really it's really great to see how indeed sports and 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 professional golf uh, can create these magical moments that uh, help people rise above some of the things that are going on in the background. Yeah, absolutely. Because, yeah, again, it, it, this idea that it was going to be overshadowed is amazing that the golf itself actually overshadowed what was overshadowing it, which doesn't doesn't always happen. So what next? I mean, this is, you know, Canadians are going to get really excited about this for a while. And then next year, there'll be there'll be a def- talk of the defense that'll take up uh, all mm-hmm. the a lot of space in the week leading up to the to the tournament, I'm sure. But what next for, for Canadian golf in general it must be a, a moment of optimism for for us as we move into some of the uh, the bigger tournaments ahead as well. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, the players are the men's players are off to the the men's U.S. Open right. uh, this week in Los Angeles, and um, you know, there's I believe we have seven uh, players in the field. I have to make sure that I count that accurately again <laughs> after right. the re- recent results. But we're we're uh, you know they're they're playing nicely. Uh, Corey Connors contended at the PGA Championship a few weeks ago, and obviously Nick is playing well, coming off a win, and Adam Hadwin played nicely this week as well. And there's a bunch of reason to be optimistic and we're we're very proud of the fact that you know there's been four separate there's been four canadian winners on the pga tour in the current season right which is second only to the united states so every you know the united states has 11 separate winners and no other country is uh is at four england's got three and so we're we're pretty excited about that and i think it demonstrates how Canadian golf at the highest level is continuing to get better and a lot of credit to the players and, and, and the, you know, and the coaches that work with those those players. And, uh, you know, we're optimistic for what that holds uh, down the road. Yeah, I, I just on on back to yesterday's winning putt. I mean, I, watching it, I, I get the impression you're going to tell your grandkids you were there, right? I mean, that's the, that's the, that's what happened yesterday. It was one of those moments in sporting history in a country that you don't forget. It does seem like I've seen, you know, I haven't been able to watch the broadcast in full, but it, I, I was told that Jim Nance referred to it as one of the greatest moments in, in Canadian sports history. And it does seem people are talking about it. Like it, like the kind of Joe Carter walk off yeah, home run. Paul Henderson goal. Yeah, exactly. yeah, the Paul Henderson goal and the city Crosby's uh, golden goal. Yeah. And uh, you know, that's, it's, it's, that's, that's unbelievable really. And, and I guess we'll have to see how history does treat it, but yesterday it was an awfully special and dramatic thing. And I, you just, there's nothing more dramatic that could have happened at the RBC Canadian open than, than a Canadian winning in a four hole playoff to break a 69 year drought with a 72 foot Eagle. Putt. So, <laughs> exactly. um, so maybe it is right up there with all those other special moments. Yeah. You couldn't have scripted if golf Canada could have, couldn't have scripted it better. I don't think. Yeah, literally could not have. And, you know, the way that it all played out and and the just it, it is it's a special thing. And I think, Nick, uh, as he said yesterday, this historical significance of it, I'm sure will set in for for him and for all of us over time. But just the performance that he put forth in the circumstance was was remarkable. And, we're, you know, we're we're celebrating that as much as as the historical significance, just for him to be able to do what he did in those conditions, in those circumstances was uh was was remarkable well kevin thank you so much excellent thank you 